0: Welcome to the Heroes of Reality podcast, a podcast about the game of life and the hero's journey we all experience. Let's jump in with our host, Dylan Watkins, as he introduces today's guest.
1: What up, Young Adventurers? Dylan here, and I'm here with Rick Leander. He is a global executive with a track record of building businesses, innovating products, and transforming the way businesses are run. He leverages his financial acumen and when entrepreneurial experience and combines them with behavioral science to help companies enhance their go-to-market strategy with specific focus on improving connections with members customers and employees rc or rick thrives on working with smart people doing interesting work leading or being part of a group that is passionate about the work they are doing focusing ethically on improving the financial well-being of others. He is equally enthusiastic about solving tough business strategies and client experiences issues while helping to drive technology change. So without any delay, I'd like to welcome Rick. Hey, buddy. How goes it?
0: It's great, Dylan. How are you doing tonight?
1: I'm excited, man. I'm excited to have you on, dude. Uh, it's been a little while since I talked to you, and uh, and I'm, I'm just really excited to, to chat and uh, learn about your journey um all in the transformative space brother terrific terrific let's dive in cool man um so at first could you please let let people know a little bit about um your background in transformation I know you have a big hand in that and uh, I'd love to learn a little bit about the journey and I think you currently hold a position in transformative space as well
0: yeah yeah Yeah. so uh so quickly my my background is uh, more than three decades with global financial institutions spent a big chunk of my career in New York, London and Tokyo, Uh, was the uh, was the CEO of a fintech before fintech became a thing, Uh, global strategy uh, officer for a large payments company. And at some point uh, in that journey, you feel like at least I did, like I'd sold my soul to the devil. And so I have spent uh, most of the last 15 years trying to buy my soul back. Uh, mostly by working with uh, really interesting mission-driven companies, uh, sort of at the intersection of behavioral economics and transformative technologies.
1: That's really interesting. And I've seen that's kind of like ships crossing the night. One of the things I've noticed is that a lot of people in the I want to make money space go, I want to go in the help people space. And then some people like in the nonprofit world or the help people space that can't survive for a long time, like, you know what, I just need to make some money. And so they kind of cross and things. And I think the holy grail is really trying to get those two pieces together, which is how do we make money, be healthy and thrive, as well as helping other people at the same time? And it sounds a bit of what you kind of do, bringing a bit of that global fintech strategy to these companies. How do you, knowing that that's kind of the goals and some of the challenges that people face, um, what are the typical um, roadblocks that you usually help? Uh, these companies unstuck themselves or get out of these situations to actually become a profitable, conscious company?
0: Well, you know, I think one of the things that's happened with entrepreneurs today, particularly mission driven entrepreneurs, is they're kind of already headed in that space, Mm -hmm. um, right? The real problem is trying to convince people that are trying to automate some process so you can put 30,000 people out of work that there's probably a different way to use that technology. Um, And it's one of the reasons that the transformative tech space is so cool. Right. I mean, the the whole goal of of this transformative tech ecosystem is to create technology that helps with human well-being and flourishing. And the ecosystem really uh, has as one of its premises that you can do that and be profitable, that you can make money while helping to move society forward. Um, And and that's really kind
1: of the areas that we're focusing on today do you have a process because you talk about global strategy and strategy is one of those like the word design it's very amorphous it's very kind of hard to pin down so like how do you define strategy and then like how do you help companies with the strategy process
0: yeah I, you know for it it's interesting i belong to a strategy group that meets every thursday huh. half of them are from europe and the other half are from the u.s and we spend lots of time debating exactly what strategy is. And I'm not sure that the group's ever actually morphed around a single idea, but for me, the idea of a strategy is uh, focusing on what's the long-term goal and objective for the organization and using that as kind of your North star for everything else that you do. Mm -hmm. Um, And, and that really helps. And, And of course, particularly when we're talking about mission driven companies, we almost always start with, so what's the mission, right? What are you trying to do? What constituencies are you're trying to serve? Are there specific problems you're trying to solve or specific opportunities you think exist in the marketplace? And then let that then drive into a series of executional strategies and, and tactics. Mm. And one of the, in, in terms of process, a lot of the process depends on the culture of the organization and the way they're used to thinking about choices and making decisions and analyzing options. But one of the things that we do almost all the time in this process is talk about the need for, you know, what we would call a, a, a cheerful germudgeon uh, or a devil's advocate, right? Somebody who's actually prepared to sit around the table and ask the questions that either nobody asked or nobody ever wanted to have asked. You know, it's this notion of really making sure that you've, you've chewed hard on the assumptions, that you've really analyzed all the options, that you've thought hard about what could work and what couldn't work. Um, you know, when we speak about sort of the process for this, one of the things I love to do is talk to founders and strategy teams around, all right, so what are the things that could cause this from working? And what's interesting is in a lot of these conversations, you go, "Oh no, this is this is gold. This is going to work. There's nothing that could screw this up." And when that happens, I say, "Well, then our work's not done, right? You guys need to go away hard and think hard about what are the ways this could go badly, mm-hmm. because once we've identified sort of what could go wrong with the strategy, what mm-hmm. what assumptions could be flawed." Then you can begin to build a process around. All right. So what do we do if that happens? Because invariably, that is what happens, right? Um, and and so this this notion of really testing hard, really asking tough questions, and trying to find a way to validate the the assumptions and test all the
1: assumptions are are a critical part of the process for me. Yeah, I've never heard the term cheerful grumudgeon, um, but. I absolutely know that type of person and it's very, uh, the antithesis of, of who I am. Cause so I have a, um, I have a, a CFO on my company and we're always being, me being the CEO, I'm always going, but here's, what's going to happen. We're going to get these things. I've got a plan. I've got this. And then she goes, she looks backwards. She's like, yeah, but our history is this, this is what we've done. This so is I'm like, yeah, but you don't understand where we're going. And so this is, and she's a very cheerful, wonderful person. And, but as soon as you hear it, it um, uh, uh, I appreciate it, but it does make me want to rip out the hair I don't have having to have those conversations back. it's it's super critical and needed and it's challenging. but it's like how do you stay how do you keep in that pocket of being both uh uh cheerful and then also ruthlessly critical to the vision, right? like it's very hard because it's versus just absolutely just being fearful because there's a difference between being fearful and being critical. and it's a very it's a very uh nuanced conversation. That you have to walk that line. So, how? What are some telltale signs that someone that someone's actually doing what they're doing, or they've gone too far, or they're not going far enough? Um, uh, being in that position of being a cheerful uh, Um I
0: think one of the ways that you you often see this executed from people who haven't gone through the exercise before is it's a little bit like the Monty Python skit, where it's just the, you know, whatever, if everybody says yes, you say no automatically, right? And, mm. and what you're really trying to do is drive a conversation, you're really trying to, uh, to challenge assumptions, um, to, uh, challenge beliefs, in some case challenge the the research that you've done. And a lot of it, uh, the way I the way I like to do it, the way I like seeing people do it is through the process of asking really good questions, right? I mean, I've been a chief strategy officer several times in my career, and I've always told CEOs that I dealt with that if they were hiring me as a chief strategy officer because they, they wanted somebody to do all the answers, they were hiring the wrong guy. That really, I think, really good chief strategy officers are the ones that know what questions need to get asked. And then if they're really fortunate, they're surrounded with really, really smart people who go away and get those answers. And so that process really needs to be sort of asking thoughtful questions that get to the heart of the, 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 the issues and not just the automatic game saying of, of whatever the position is on the other side of the table. That's, that's clearly an indication you've gone too far. And I think at every point when you've gotten the questions asked, Um, and answered, even if you didn't like the answers, at some point the team either needs to step up and say, yeah, you know, I'm not sure I agree with all of this, but as an organization we need to move forward or they need to say, I don't agree with this and it's time for me to move on. Uh, Because once you finally reach the point where a, a decision's final, the team really needs to put out a unified front to the organization
1: got it yeah and that's and that's hard and that's a challenge and I, and I imagine there's a lot of conflict with the ceo of the company and chief strategist i have a hard time sometimes differentiating between those two positions because i feel like the ceo a lot is about to be the visionary and strategy and thinking that along and sometimes if if you have that, it, it's almost like uh two heads of a snake trying to trying to work together if they have different strategies but what you're saying is that the the perspective shift that i'm getting from you it's more about chief strategy officer is more about asking questions than trying to like instead of trying to say oh i know the strategy i'm gonna shove it down your throat it's more about it's more about a questioning insightful reflective process to get people to expand what's possible versus trying to drive agenda is that kind of what i'm hearing
0: Uh, absolutely i mean the 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 organizations where i've been chief strategy officer where it worked it worked because i was a real partner with the ceo almost an alter ego right so the ceo's version in, in those cases the ceo's version of a strategy uh, question was you know sending me an email at two o'clock in the morning saying i just had this most interesting thought what if we did x and my job as the chief strategy officer was to go ask and and, and get answered the 20 30 40 50 questions that needed to get asked and answered before we went and did x
1: oh. um
0: so it's really important that 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 you have a really good relationship and not every ceo wants a chief strategy officer um twice i have moved on because the ceo got replaced and the new ceo said i i really think i should be my own chief strategy officer so it it's very much uh, it's
1: a style it's a personality you got to be in sync with the person you're you're dealing with yeah, and that's that's actually a really powerful point. And one of the things I realize also sometimes some of the CEOs of companies they throw out half-baked ideas, right? And they don't put in the time to flush out a concept. So if you're talking about saying, "Oh, well, I think we should do this," and then you ask the fifty-seven questions around the thing that makes it makes it you know reveal the 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 shroud that is hiding the idea, that makes a ton of sense to me because then the the CEO can't get get with these. From what I've seen some CEOs do in the spaces, they have like a half cocked idea and they throw it in the crowd and then they get mad at everybody for not executing the half baked idea because there wasn't a clarity and concept and, and really a care that went into crafting that idea or a strategy behind that idea to send that out. So that 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 really resonates with me is is really helping CEOs flushing out their sometimes half baked ideas that they don't realize a half baked because they're they're uh, emotionally involved with the core concept versus actually exploring what the concept could be. And uh, and uh, instead of infatuated it, going to actually marry the concept, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah. And and in my experience, you also see the other side of this, hmm. which is you've got a CEO who thought they were just talking out loud and then woke up a month later to find out that everybody had gone and chased some idea that had surfaced at a board meeting. And the CEO goes, wait a minute, i I was just bouncing ideas off you guys. I didn't expect you to go out and buy X or do whatever. So both of those things happen. And that's that's again, where where a CSO can really help mm-hmm. the organization, make sure that there's a process to go through before you you chase down one of these. Um, you know, I, I'm a huge a huge fan of, of a concept that I first heard from Paul Sappho at Institute for the Future years ago. Mm-hmm. This notion of strong opinions weekly held. Um, And, you know, there are some people that this drives crazy, but I've always liked it because his notion was, was you should always feel comfortable making an opinion based on incomplete information, because let's face it, it's always incomplete information. But then you need to be intellectually honest and go away and actively find things that would change that opinion you've created. Um,
1: And if you do that, you can stay out of trouble a lot of times. One thing I really, really like about that concept is that a lot of times there is a fear around the judgment of other people and how much you accept and adopt idea and how much you're willing to let go of an identity or a concept around a thing that allows you. To... Because a lot of times people step the space in there, they're too afraid to lean in all the way and go one way or the other. And so they're kind of in this like emotional pull and tug where they're, they're kind of pulling their punches If you would go through a process versus saying, okay, we're all into this. Okay. That's not working. We're not all into that. We're going the other direction and you go back Mm -hmm. and forth and back and forth with that. But if you do that, you make so much more progress if you're willing to completely adopt an identity around a company or a mission or a brand or whatever they might be, and then completely let it go and jump in. It seems like you make so much more progress that way versus not willing to let yourself, uh, fall in love with something else or expect, explore something else or or uh let yourself be something different uh just take lessons from madonna if you would her ability to reinvent herself again and right. again and again for decades so that's a beautiful beautiful thing how how are you what are some key signs or what i call threshold guardians that maybe like uh ceos or chief strategists are are not adopting that and they might be too firmly entrenched around a core concept or an identity like how how do they, how do you gain awareness that you maybe aren't holding strong opinions weekly held um
0: there are probably all kinds of indicators about that yeah. right i mean one of my one of my friends Trunca Moy, wrote a really interesting book called billion dollar lessons yeah where he talks about these massive failures that supposedly were made or that were made by supposedly really smart people, right? The smartest people in the room consistently make really bad decisions. And a lot of it has to do with the culture, uh, the attitude at the top and how decisions get, get made as a group, right? There's all kinds of behavioral economics, things that we talk about that deal with how groups make decisions and how they how they tend to get into trouble. Mm. The other I, I, one, one sort of personal um, pet peeve for me, and you know, I think anybody who's ever worked for a large company has at one point had a boss, and I've had several over over my career. Who, you know, when you first meet them and you're trying to iron out what your you know operating principles are going to be with them, how many times have you had a boss say, "And I don't like any surprises." Right, I don't want any surprises. When I was running the, you know, when I was was in the strategic technology group at a at a major bank, my team was challenged to surprise me every single week. Right, I wanted to learn something new, and I wanted them to be learning something new. Um, and it, it's just amazing how so much of the, the the, the models, the leadership models you know, stress this notion that there shouldn't be any surprises. And I understand what they're trying to get to, but a message that broad and not very um, nuanced, I think leads to a situation where as you move up the ladder, people increasingly aren't prepared to look somebody in the eye and say, that's just not right. You're just not paying attention. So the first thing these guys ought to do, the guys and gals, the first thing leaders at the top ought to do is embrace this notion that there are tons of things they don't know. There's tons of things their marketing team and their research team and their product development team don't know, and that they ought to go out every every day and try and find something new that surprises them that they didn't know before.
1: That's so awesome, and you're right. Without there's a there's a there's a thing that happens that I've noticed is like a flip. So when you're a small, tiny, smart, there you will do massive growth because everything's a risk and you go it. But as you scale as a company, you kind of flip that model where now you have something to lose. And so nobody wants to be the person that causes the big loss to happen. And you see this a lot in government institutions where everyone's just like, okay, as long as I don't step out of line, I'm safe. And so everybody does it. The safety becomes the number one priority versus growth. And when they choose that, there's a stagnation. There's no innovation. There's no creation. And because of that, you're, they're never able to kind of reinvent themselves. And then the market kind of surpasses them as a path. What? Uh, how do you? I love the idea, and, and around the letting the team know there's no surprises, like or not no surprises. That you want to be surprised every day, and that's kind of creating that and creating that thing. Is that around? You're talking about uh, behavioral economics. Can you expand? a little bit more about what uh, the behavioral economics is and, and how it relates to, to this, um, this concept?
0: Sure. So if you think back to the classic economics that we all got exposed to in school, mm-hmm. it starts with the premise that humans are rational, right? That we are, that our preferences are stable, that we uh, understand risks and know how to do risk analysis well that we're able to prioritize short-term versus long-term, you know, behavioral economics suggests that that's a myth, right? That that, um, that our preferences aren't stable, that we don't make good decisions, that we're incredibly short-term focused, that we like immediate gratification. Um, you know, the, the Nobel Prize winning economist Richard Thayer refers to this notion of supposedly irrelevant factors sifs all these things that classic economics say shouldn't impact the way you make decisions but in fact really do. So while classic economics would suggest that we're all Mr. Spock from Star Trek, behavioral economics suggests we're all Homer Simpson um, And so you know what what we do in behavioral science behavioral economics is, recognize what those things are and then try and put them to use in a way that steers people toward behavior that's good for them mm. um, now you can also use this stuff for evil right you can and, and we see this all the time um uh, where uh when you want to unsubscribe from something for an example the amount of friction that gets put into that process so that surprising amounts of people just give up and never unsubscribe and continue to pay the $25 a year is staggering. Um, and and so behavior economics, like almost everything else, can be used for good or for bad. Um, but that's what we try and do. We what we do in behavior economics is try and educate people on how how consumers really analyze choices and make decisions and then use that knowledge so
1: that you can steer people to better behaviors got it i mean it's recognizing that we're not um thinking machines that feel we're feeling machines that think and that those that we make that that heartfelt decision and then we use our brain to kind of justify the whole process of like oh that's that because it's a savings that's why i did it or insert whatever reason that makes sense when you are um, analyzing, uh, whether it's a customer or actual employee or anybody in the space, do you have a, a process for identifying the behaviors of the consumer or of, of employees to, to really kind of get that? Because there's a, a thing that happens that I've noticed where like, you don't get the entire truth from people. They don't, they're not completely forthright for whatever reason, whether they're consumers or whether they're employees, they, they're kind of like, okay, what can I tell you? to make this conversation go away as fast as possible. So how do you mitigate against that? And how do you get people to be fully authentic and share their their, uh, dark underbelly of actions to be fully uh, transparent so that you can understand and actually build around that or with that? Yeah, I I think uh, pollsters in the last two national elections have shown that
0: people don't often tell you or often don't tell you what's really going on and what's driving them. One of the things we know in behavioral economics is that that in general, surveys are a terrible way to find out what people are really doing. If you want to find out what people are really doing, you go and watch their behavior Uh, because you're right. People will rationalize all kinds of things and give you the reasons why they did it. Um, And oftentimes it's either because they want the conversation in quickly or because they are at some level embarrassed by the, the difference between the way they think they should have behaved and the way they actually did behave. And so they provide cover for it. So there, there's a Japanese term which escapes me at the moment, but it's, it was developed in Japan. And the idea was that if you wanted to know what was going on on the factory floor, you didn't look at numbers, you didn't look at surveys, you actually wandered down to the factory floor and you watched people in action. And so when we're, particularly when we're dealing with early stage companies, and they're trying to think about market research and market fit, and you know, we say surveys is one way to get the data and it will probably be worth about as much as you are paying people to, to play, right? If you're asking for free surveys on SurveyMonkey online, don't count on the results being particularly useful. And certainly don't count on them when you say, here's a great product, how much would you pay for it? Because everybody will pay, will buy everything in that kind of kind of scenario. Um, well, what we tell people is they need to go away and observe, they need to go away. And this isn't new news. If you think about, for instance, the way Procter & Gamble develops a lot of their laundry products, for instance, they take product managers and their teams and they stick them in people's houses. And they watch how people do laundry how do they interact with the machines how do they pour the liquid or pull the pods out or do whatever because they know that surveys are an
1: incredibly poor substitute for seeing what people actually do It makes a ton of sense i mean you're, you're cutting out all of the the interpretation all of the narrative stories all of that stuff because you are watching direct actions and it's not being filtered through what they're saying. You get to go out and see it and do, it, which is true. It's just one of those things. It's like the same thing. Like, how do I get fit diet and exercise? There you go. Two words. Have a great day. Take care of your body But but so many people won't go through that actual process. They'll try all of these other easier, less friction thingies, take a pill, do a thing to try to get that tangible result where we know how that we know how to get that. It's just the, the effortful intention, of taking the time to watch people to break that stuff down is, is a challenge to have people execute. So I think I think that's that's wonderful. Uh, yeah,
0: there there you know there are a couple of things to break down in, in that in that um, conversation, Dylan. One is, you're right. What what we know both in healthcare and in financial services, so it plot probably applies everywhere. Is education is almost worthless. It's an important first step on a marathon journey. And the reason I know that is because you can survey every American in this country and north of 95% of them know that they need to be more healthy by eating less and exercising more. And yet the obesity levels in this country are through the roof. So knowing ain't doing as we're fond of saying, right? So knowledge alone is a, is an important first step, but talk about the first step and just a long journey and So a lot of the financial institutions that we deal with are really focused on financial literacy. Oh, my members aren't saving well or, you know, my my customers are spending too much money. I should educate them. Yeah, educate them to begin with. But then where the tools and the reminders and the assistance that you're going to provide as they try and put that knowledge to use because it just, you know, knowledge alone doesn't work. Um, The other thing, too, that you hit on is this notion of. Um, and, and Kahneman refers to this as the, whole, uh, the, the hot state, cold state kind of dilemma. Mm-hmm. One of the reasons surveys are so awful is because we tend to survey people when they're not in the emotional state that we're trying to test, right? So you sit down with somebody online or in their home and you survey them about how they like to buy a car and you get a bunch of answers. Well, the problem is when you're surveying them at home, they're not in a car buying mode. They're not in that environment. If you surveyed them while they were in the car dealership debating with a salesperson, the chances are pretty good you'd get a very different range of of answers, right? And if you think about it, this hot state, cold state thing works in all kinds of places. It's why nutritionists tell you never to go grocery shopping when you're hungry. Because when you're in a cold state, you go, I'm going to just buy the vegetables and, you know, the, the low-fat stuff and low calories. and I'm going to be really, really careful. And then you wander into the grocery store when you're in a hot state and you buy a bunch of donuts. And your justification isn't, oh, well, I was in a hot state and I was hungry. It was, oh, I spent an extra hour at the gym last week. And so I have kind of earned the right to eat those donuts. So... You know, when we're in a hot state, we won't predict what we, you know, we, we're terrible at rationalizing what we've done. And when we're in a cold state, we don't do a good job at all of predicting how we might act when we're in a hot state. So, so watching what people do and mm-hmm. trying to interview them when they're in the state in which you're trying to, when, when they be engaging in your activity or playing with your application or messing with your product, you, you won't, still won't get perfect results, but you're likely to get a better set of
1: data. A hundred percent. That makes so much sense. And you're absolutely right. And then you're so what you're looking for is you're really it's kind of like a double pull trigger where you're like, OK, I'm going to I'm only I'm going to wait until this person is in the right state and then I'm going to look at their habits or I'm gonna ask the question or, or whatever it might be. But if they're not in the right state, if they're uh, you know, if uh, you know, if it's midnight, and I'm asking them to, you know, I don't know, review the sunrise, just. That's way off bad analogy. But for example, that out of a different state, it doesn't quite make sense. So I love that. I love that concept. And so then you, you roll that and then you can get real data and real facts and you can kind of build things from there. Um in terms of uh behavioral economics, I know you you went from the fintech world before it was syntech and, and and you're now in the the transformative spaces. What transformative technologies or what areas are you specifically interested in and what companies and that type of, you don't have to name specific names, but what general types of technologies really excite you about helping people and using this behavioral economics and apply it in a way that actually has a transformative effect?
0: Yeah. Well, um, you know, in transformative tech, we a, a lot of the effort has been around Uh, this notion of physical health and well-being, but also mental health and mental well-being. Um, And there are also tracks of of work that we do around the future of cities and the future of transportation and actually the future of work. Because one of the really scary things is is there's been some research that within the next 10 years between automation and artificial intelligence, you know, a significant percentage of jobs that exist today are going to disappear. And a big chunk of those, much to a lot of people's surprise, are knowledge worker jobs, right? A bunch of the basic programming jobs are going to go away because we're teaching machines to program. Mm. Um, and so knowledge workers are not are not safe and secure from this process. So the stuff that interests me heavily these days is the stuff particularly around mental health and mental well-being. We've seen um, a lot of of impact this past 18 months because of the shutdown. But even before the shutdown, what we realized was that a lot of things that were going on in the technology world that were supposed to help were actually making things worse. So even before the pandemic, what you found was that the interaction that people had with with our so-called social media tools continued to grow And yet, the feeling of isolation—the people who reported feeling isolated and friendless and depressed—those numbers were growing and growing and growing long before the before the pandemic sort of locked everybody up. Um, You know, one of the things I'm fond of saying, although I have to admit our founder is not quite so fond of me saying this, is one of the things about transformative technology. One of the things we're working on is to use technology to fix the problems that technology has created or at least made worse so um so an easy example of of things that are going on in this space are tools to help with meditation right most people in fact a significant chunk of people who have tried meditation for any kind of regular time report that it helps on a whole variety of fronts it helps with stress it helps with anxiety it helps with depression and yet we've really struggled to make meditation accessible to a wide swath of the population. People don't know how to get started. And so they one of the things that I think the transformative tech ecosystem has really helped the last four or five years is a series of both software and hardware programs that help people get acclimated to uh, the ecosystem uh, around meditation. But some of them are just simple apps that you can download on your smart device, but others are devices that you wear that are that provide biofeedback to really help you uh, understand what state of meditation you're in and provide cues to help you go deeper and deeper. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm really, really proud of the work that the ecosystem done has done in that field, um, particularly given
1: what we've all just been through these last... 20 months see that's super interesting and you're looking at it and what i would call kind of like gamifying your life right you're, you're you're putting gamification metrics which means these these unseen things where people are meditating but it's not being tracked it's not being accounted for or you're getting you have all of these unseen metrics that we perceive with people like you can somewhat tell like if you see me and i just got back from starbucks and i had a trenta coffee and i'm all jacked up on my i'm all shaking we're having a conversation you're like you got a lot of energy. There's something going on with you that's a bit intense. I mean, but if you were to look at my heart rate and my, you know, HRV and, and all the and all the biofeedback, there would be clear indicators what's going on. So being able to pull these biofeedback elements out and and actually expose them to people, it creates that first state of what meditation is supposed to do, which is awareness, right? You become first you become aware and then you can regulate. And that's Part of that being focused on the breathing i can tell when i'm all out of whack when my meditation when also my brain keeps going to a certain subject i'm clearly worried about something or something's going on and i'm trying to focus on my breath and my monkey mind's like no 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 you got this thing you're gonna get you're gonna uh you're gonna end up in the forest by yourself alone and you're gonna die or something's gonna happen some sort of weird primal instinct and so i love the concept kind of gamifying your life by using these unseen markers and making them into like gamified tactics and so um have you is, is there any particular one of these technologies that stand out to you that have really created kind of a gamification style or things that you're really excited for that that um might be on the forefront i think uh the one that i think is almost too crazy we don't need to dive super deep is is uh Elon Musk actually tapping into the brain by drilling a hole in the head and then hooking it up to an app. I'm not quite there yet. I'm close. I'm not quite there yet, but is there is there any other ones that like stand out to you that, that really um, specifically excite you?
0: Well, the, the one that I've latched onto is a device called um, Muse. Mm. They have a couple of different versions, one of which you can sleep in. So along with basic meditation techniques, it also helps, uh, it's got some regimes that'll play to help you fall into a good sleep um, set uh, earlier. Um, they run competitions. There's the app keeps track of, of uh, how many hours a day or how many minutes a day you've meditated and what state you were in, whether you were calm or neutral or active. Um, it gives you a wide variety of options. You can share the information mm-hmm. with your friends so uh it it's it was my first exposure to the hardware side of the meditation piece and it continues
1: to be my favorite that's awesome i, I had the muse headband uh it's somewhere i moved i don't know where it is it's <laughs> definitely somewhere i know i know that for sure uh one of the things that i thought was interesting about it is when you start to meditate really good the birds pop in and they chirp and then yep. i and then i recognize that the birds chirp and then i lose the birds yeah. And, and that pattern of going oh i'm doing good and that just knocks me right out of the whole point of it and that's it's really funny because you're talking about meditation competitions which is the exact opposite of what meditations are for but at the same time i got excited of, of like i can meditate harder than you look at me go which is a really funny concept but i mean in some ways you need that because there's that gamified habit that gets you to kind of roll through it that more than anything you you just want to you want to create that urge and that desire to make it something that you want to do, you know, kind of like a, a training wheels on the side of yep. the truck, and, it, and the training wheels is getting you going, and it's not necessarily intended for training wheels. And then you pull them off, and you're like, "Look, I can meditate," so which is uh, which is really fun. Um, a, along the way w- uh, with these transformative technologies, um, and you know, so it seems like you do a lot of things around coaching and guiding and advice and, and mentoring all of these transformative technology companies, what are typical um, threshold guardians or roadblocks have you seen companies make as they're getting into the space? What are some typical uh, stumbling blocks that they may come across?
0: What I think is interesting is at least for the companies that I play with, most of them don't realize they're in the transformative technology space until I tell them. Oh. So yeah. So they they have this they have this passion. They're mm-hmm. working really hard to get it done. They're not getting the kind of traction that they think their great ideas should get from from the capital providers. Um and somehow I get introduced to them. You know, I I hear a presentation or a friend introduces me and I listen to like 10 seconds of their pitch and I go, oh you're a transformative tech company. Let me, let me share that world with you. Um, And so there's, to a large degree, there's massive relief that there's actually other people worrying about this and there are other people who are thinking about it. So it's kind of, they, they often find themselves really pleased that they're members of a club they didn't know existed. Right. Um, And, and that there, there's help that come with that. But then I think what happens is they go, Oh, So you guys have access to all the capital that will get this immediately. And the answer is no. You're still going to have to run through the traps, right? You're still going to have to to play the game. We're going to be able to put you in contact with people who are more attuned to this space. That may be a good thing and it may be a bad thing because you may end up dealing with people who know a lot more. You know, you have been dealing with people who knew a lot, lot less than you.
1: Mm -hmm. Now
0: you're going to deal with people who know a lot, lot more than you do. And so be prepared for the fact that, you know, the, the bar may be
1: raised on some of the conversations that you're trying to have. Um, that's, that's super interesting. And I've seen that a lot. Uh, I've also seen that a lot in the virtual reality space because I, I, I do a yeah. lot in virtual reality where people get this wonderful, amazing idea. And then they immediately go, uh, someone's going to steal my idea. Someone's going to take my idea. I don't want to look. So I'm just going to heads down. I'm going to knock this thing out. And they go into a cave. Right. And they don't realize that there's a whole city being built around this cave and they don't get it. And then eventually when they pop out there, they're like, look, I've made this one building. And then they see that there's skyscrapers all around them. They're like, oh, shoot. And it's like, but if they would have gone to the big city in the beginning, they would have been a part of the community. They would have seen, oh, I don't necessarily need to build this thing. I could I could leverage what he's building and I can take my two cents and add to it and, and build an extra, you know, level on top of that building or something. But I've seen that a lot where they, they end up in the cave because of lack of connections or fear or, or whatever, or just, just not, uh, or fall in love with their idea product. I, I've seen that so much. I think it's really powerful. But then that, what you're talking about, that next step, which I want to, I want to ask you a question is the next step is like, Oh, Oh, there's investors. Oh, please help me. If, if I only had a whole bunch of money, all of my problems would be solved. I have this idea. It's on the back of the napkin. It's a great idea. Can I, can, can you give me a million dollars? Right. So what's, if you were, if there was somebody listening, what would be some indicators that they're ready for investment? What would be some signs to show them that they may or may not be ready to actually seek it? Or what would they need to do to really build safety and confidence for investors inside the space? You
0: know, d- despite some of the folklore that has grown up around uh, a few of the uh, of the 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 massive tech companies most people are not going to get funding on an idea uh, certainly the the folks that i know that are providing funding of any amounts at all are not going not going to give you an idea give you a bunch of money because you've sketched out something on a napkin i think i don't know that those days are over you know I, i'm you know, I've known, I've learned never to say never and always because the universe has a way of slapping you around when you do that. But I think the chances of finding funding for an idea on the back of a napkin, particularly in the transformative tech space, are pretty small. Mm-hmm. Um, what we're going to be looking for are uh, is a team that's got the ability to actually execute and some progress, um, mm-hmm. right? You don't necessarily need a minimum viable product. I mean, we'll we'll get involved in and in some of the other. Folks that we know, the angel investors will play in this space. Um, but you got to be further along than than just an idea on a napkin. You really, you've got to have a team. You've got to have some roadmap that tells us how you're going to get this thing to market. You're going to have to give us something that talks about what the opportunity is in the marketplace. You know, when I hear a pitch, I'm interested in three things. I'm interested in a, in a really good description of what the product or the opportunity is um what your solution is and why you think your solution is better than the stuff that's already out there because there are very few things that are being chased today that haven't been chased by a bunch of people and so being able to being able to explain why yours is the breakout idea from the mob is going to be really important before you get very far along and and you don't have to do all that stuff on your own there's all kinds of accelerators and incubators that will take people in for little or no money and teach them a bunch of stuff and get them hooked up with mentors who are really, really smart. Um, and and that's the advice that I would, would give folks is get yourself surrounded with a team first. I'm, I'm really fond. Another one of my sort of guiding principles is um, I am happiest when I'm the stupidest person in the room. And I think most entrepreneurs would be better served if they believe that as well and surrounded themselves with a bunch of really stunningly smart people who can both be supportive and be the, you know, the good natured curmudgeon who's going to ask all the tough questions and make sure stuff, stuff gets tested.
1: That's, that's great. And so just, I mean, touching on those points and leading to a question about that is, I mean, really it's, it's, it's creating safety and confidence for the investors is like, Hey, do you have the team to be able to do it do you really can you can you paint a picture in my head of exactly what you're doing where the market's at and then how you're going to solve problems for that market because so many people create a product with no demand for the market or they create a product where there's already a saturated market where there's so many other things out there it's just like well, why you why different doesn't make sense so which, right. is, a, which is a challenge so one of the challenges that uh much like that curmudgeon uh gentleman or lady uh is up for is as a ceo is knowing when to hold on to the vision of your idea and say this is what i'm pushing through and then when to take feedback from people that are surrounding you that only have your best interest at heart that maybe uh don't have the same vision that you have for what you're doing and so it's, it's hard to say okay you need to take feedback to make your thing better but you need to stay hard on the vision otherwise it kind of gets like you start to lose the where you're trying to go so it's like how do you walk that fine line as a as a young uh, uh, ceo or a young person who's creating a company and, and 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 know when do you stay with the vision of what you're doing and when do you take feedback from the people around you
0: yeah that that's that's the million dollar $10 million, $1 billion question, right? Yeah. If you had a simple three-point checklist that would answer that question, you and I would both be filthy stinking rich. <laughs> um, so I'm gonna I'm gonna bail on the question a little by saying that what you've got to do is you've gotta figure out a way with your idea to get some level of comfort around market validation. Mm-hmm. right? Because your advisors may be right or wrong. The providers of capital may be right or wrong. You know, it's it's an old cliche, but you got to figure out some way to see if the dogs are going to eat it. Um, and one of the ways, you know, and people, a lot of people go, well, you know, I asked my, my brother, mother, best friend about X and they, they loved it. You know, I showed them the website or I showed them at the app. And I said, you ought to turn that question around. So what you ought to do is you ought to go to these these people and say you know one of my guys gave me this one and i'm not sure how i feel about it what do you think Mm -hmm. right don't make this about your idea make it about somebody else's idea that you may already have some skepticism on and if the people you really know and trust say no even just you know even framing it that way i think there's a nugget there you ought to chase i think you can feel a little bit more comfortable um but this if you go ask your friends what do you think of my idea you might as well just ask yourself right you might as well just look in the mirror because most of us no matter how how tough we think our friends are at some point are going to go god i can't break his heart one more time i'll just yes it's great it's the best thing we've ever seen so find some way to make it not about you yeah
1: yeah. I, I remember that I learned that mistake uh, a couple of decades ago uh, when I asked my mom an opinion about a t-shirt that I was making and then she's like, yeah, it'd be great. Yeah. And then I made them and I could, and I ended up like with boxes of these t-shirts and my mom wouldn't even buy one. So I was like, yeah. I was like, I was like, mm, mm, mm. there's a lesson here to be learned and I have a large wardrobe of the same outfit. So, you know, it's a, a win-win there for me. Um, so being being in the space and helping and helping these people out and helping them, you know, understand it. You know, is this a viable idea? Is this something that's investable? Is it how to get strategy? How to get clarity? How to actually how to actually build this business and guiding people along this mission? And it seems to me that what, if I had put you along the hero's journey, you're kind of in the mentor phase where you, you you've gone around that you've gone around the block again and you're at the, you're at the path where you're you're shepherding you know people along the path. Go okay, go through the cave. This is where you need to go. Uh, what for you? Um, being a mentor on this journey is your personal holy grail for actually contributing and putting in effort and helping these people on the path for you. What is there? Is there a a specific mission for yourself? Is there a thing you're trying to achieve or what does that look like for yourself?
0: Um, If the question is, why do I do this? Mm -hmm. There are there probably two or three things. One is as I as I said, I I like being surrounded by really smart, talented, creative people, and most entrepreneurs are, right? They're passionate about what they do, and so the the energy of these folks and their passion keeps me energized, and uh, I get really um, invested in a lot of these organizations and spend a you know fair amount of time trying to figure out how to help, right? What are the what are the things that could go wrong and how do I help them steer? Um, so they need to be smart. They need to be passionate about what they do. And the real North Star for me, as I've said, is it needs to be mission driven. They need to be doing something that is going to help move society forward in a real way. So, you know, once again, and I'll come back to this, I've quit dealing with most of the, even even with all my years in financial services, I've stopped dealing with most financial Tech companies, because most of them have as their goal to automate some process, so that you know banks don't need tellers anymore. And you know, it, it, I don't know if having tellers is a good thing or a bad thing for banks, but I know having those people employed is a good thing for society. And so I just, I, I just have no interest. I, I just can't get up in the morning and get excited about those kinds of opportunities. But if somebody's working on something that will help with with mental wellness or mm. a FinTech I am dealing with that is trying to use, not trying, they are using behavior economics to significantly increase the savings rates of low and moderate income households. I'm
1: all in for that kind of stuff. Oh, that's beautiful. With, with that, I mean, do you have a personal story of a time that you've helped one of these companies and they had a direct impact on the customer maybe a a burning heart memory or something that you reflect on where you look back you're like that was worth it and actually you felt the actual impact of helping a company and you could see the impact of who they're helping and you got the reward in that
0: yeah i, I think um this is going to stand kind of a little circular but there was a there's an organization here locally Um, Uh, They are a fintech, um, and they are very focused on savings and financial planning for low and moderate income households. And the founder, who I've gotten to know pretty well, really talented guy, um, person of color. He's had trouble raising money. Uh, One of the things that I've been associated with over the years is a group at Duke called the uh, the Common Sense Lab. And every year they take on, at no cost to the participants, five or six projects that are designed to use behavioral economics to help organizations in the FinTech space. And I um, got him introduced to these folks, lobbied hard for him, um, and he was accepted. And the... Um, headwinds or the tailwinds that this thing has produced for him are phenomenal. He's now raising money all over the place. Uh, He's getting recognized in national publications about sort of being one of the real thought leaders in this space. And so, um, you know, that's a situation where my help was getting him connected with people who could really provide tons of real hardcore experience in an area where he really needed it. Um, and, and, we, you know, when I think back on, about it, I think a lot of the work that I've done, along with the direct stuff, is the ability to get people connected with others who can, you know, help them fill in some gaps.
1: See, that's super awesome. I mean, and, and you never know, like, one connection, one right introduction, one person can change your life. And it's it's very incredible because you don't, you don't realize because sometimes you're just like, oh, that's a person. Yeah. Like, oh, that's a, that's another person. But you never know. I'm always amazed when I go back and I look at my life and I look at these just passing introductions or someone said, Hey, you should, you should check out this podcast or this thing. And, and then all of a sudden that person opens up a world to you. It's, it's an incredible experience to do that because you just one introduction to a person might seem trivial at the time, but that can snowball and then open those doorways that is just infinitely valuable. so I just I completely resonate with that and and those those connections it always feels great to make those kind of connections because then you're really you're generating a massive amount of opportunity uh, for the people in your life uh, with you yeah. and, and
0: you you've hit on something that i I spend a lot of time preaching to my to my universe of folks mm-hmm. which is um i hate this myth of the self-made person right the folks who are successful are incredibly lucky right there's all kinds of things that were outside their control that happened for them to be successful somebody introduced them to somebody or they sat next to somebody on a plane or maybe it wasn't something that happened to them but it was something that happened to somebody else that took them out of the picture that enabled an opportunity. So along with this focus of being mission driven, a lot of the conversations I have with people is you need to be giving back because everything that you've accomplished so far plays heavily because other people supported you and you need to be part of that system.
1: 100 percent. Trying to That's one of the things I see when solo entrepreneurs are trying to do a thing, you're like, ooh, that's a really Really hard place to be in if you're trying to do it all, and you're like, okay, I have an idea. I'm gonna, I'm gonna learn to program, and I'm gonna do this other thing, and I'm also gonna do the market, and I'm. It's just, it's like versus if you can really connect and inspire and and grow. It, there's so much power because you have the life experiences of people, and that's our superpower. Now, one of my beliefs is that our superpower is to use technology to connect through space and time, right? To operate as one collective whole and uh it was one of the things that allowed us to kind of dominate through the planet for good or for ill and hopefully for more <laughs> good along the way as we as we go through this but you're right that that connections are, are incredibly valuable with this and with the mission you're on with the connecting people and guiding people and and being a mentor to people along this path and, and really seeing them succeed what do you think is the dragon that would stop you? Cause you say why you're in this to help people on the way. What do you think is the biggest thing preventing them or preventing you from actually providing the kind of help that you want to provide?
0: I I, th- I think to a large degree, you've hit it, which is this notion that they need to be everything, right? That the entrepreneurs need to need to be an expert in everything and they need to do everything. There's a, there's a wonderful local company here in the, the, the CEO and the company is, is, beginning to gain some real traction, but they'd have gained traction a couple of years ago if the CEO had quit saying, I need to do everything. I need to know everything. I need to learn everything. He was surrounded by a group of mentors who were prepared to jump in and do everything from market research to operations to helping him set up payroll systems. And no, he just felt like he needed to have his hands in everything. Um, And, you know, I, I, I had the conversation with him that I have with just about every entrepreneur that I play with, which is you want to have two goals. Your goal ought to be to be really, really smart and still be the dumbest person in the room because
1: that's a really good place to be. And he, yeah, that's beautiful. That is a beautiful statement. By the way, your goal is you ought to be really, really smart and still be the dumbest person in the room. That is an amazing goal to have. And yeah, being a part of that i i totally rate there was a situation where um so i do i do virtual reality hackathons right and one of the mm-hmm. ones that i did was at mit media labs and i was I yeah. was judging and hosting those things and i was sitting with this other girl and uh we were talking and we we're talking back and forth as we we're helping some of these people and she's like she's like yeah man she's like i don't feel really smart when i'm around these people here she's like everyone here is so smart and she's like she's like i just graduated from harvard and i was just like and i was like oh I'm so dumb. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, oh my God. But they're really, they're really smart. They also, they also party very, very hard. Um, I don't know if it's the cold or not, but, but that's an amazing goal to have. And I completely agree with it. And sorry, that, that one thought hit me so hard. So that's an amazing goal. It, I mean, it, on that note, I mean, if you could put up like a billboard sign, or if you could have like a message to tell entrepreneurs, like one lesson or one thing, like, you know, with, would that be the lesson or is there anything else that you would put up to say okay uh you're getting started in this world you're taking your first step on the journey pay attention to x
0: yeah yeah I, you know i think i combine a couple of things i've already said one is is like i said be really really smart and still the dumbest person in the room and make sure you've got a cheerful curmudgeon sitting around the table somebody who's prepared to look you in the eye and in a way that resonates with you and i say cheery but depending on the CEO's style and personality, you may need a real son of a bitch to be your, yeah. to be your curmudgeon, right? You need somebody, you need somebody who can look the head guy in the eye and say, this isn't working and they need to be able to respect
1: that. That is so powerful. You're right. Cause I mean, some people, the, you need to be able to get through to them and some people need a whisper and some people need an anvil hit over their head. And it just depends on what do you need? And that's a bit of a that, that curmudgeon looking at them and going, what is it? Is it, a, is it a pinch of salt or is it a bowl of salt? And I just, right. I, I completely get that. Uh, I think that's yeah. uh, absolutely wonderful. And I think it's a beautiful lesson. So um, with that being said, um, is there anything else you'd like to let people know about before you can tell them how to get a hold of you?
0: Well, um, the, one of the things that I got got introduced to a few years ago, um, which is particularly as I've been playing with people in the technology space and, and in the transformative technology space in particular, is a quote by Paul Virilio, the French philosopher, who said, when you invent the ship, you also invent the shipwreck. When you invent the plane, you invent the plane crash. And when you invent electricity, you invent electrocution. Too often today, we create great technologies with the best purposes in mind and forget that there's a flip side to it. And I want entrepreneurs, I want people who are creating technology to understand that they own both sides of this and they really need to be conscious of it because I think a lot of the problems we're seeing today, particularly a lot of the social media space, is we didn't pay attention to the other side of of the technology. Um, and now we're trying to dig ourselves out and i think i think people who invent this stuff have a ought
1: to have a moral and ethical obligation to figure out what you're going to do when it crashes it, you know this conversation much like the hero's journey has just come full circle with, with the, the, the ability to say like that happy grimmage and, and be able to say, okay, great. You have this dream. You have this vision. This, okay. what if everything goes wrong? What if the ship turns into a shipwreck? What if this happens? And that's important because then you recognize that it's a cycle. You recognize the journey. And if you plan for those obstacles along the way, you can, you can smell it because you, you can smell it coming because you're going to be in that cold state and you can recognize when that hot state arrives. And then you, when you recognize it, it allows you to go, I know this was coming because we've talked about this, you know, I've, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm at the grocery store, I'm not hungry. And so now I know what I need to do, which I think is, I think it was a, a beautifully poetically said. So, uh, Rick, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, uh, thank you for all the work that you've done in the transformative tech space. And, uh, yeah, it's been, it's been a beautiful time talking with you. Thank you. Really enjoyed this a lot, Dylan. Thank you for the invitation. Absolutely, brother. Have a beautiful and blessed day and I'll, I'll see you on the other side, okay? Sounds good. Take care. You too. Bye now.
0: Thank you for listening to the Heroes of Reality podcast. Check out heroesofreality.com for more episodes. While you're there, you can also take the Heroes quiz to find out what kind of hero you are. Or if you have a great story and want to be on the podcast, tell us why your hero's journey will inspire others. Thank you for listening. See you on the other side.